Well, what a great video of a great event. When you think of these 20 people who took this important, crucial step in discipleship, how can we not celebrate them doing this? When Jesus gave us what's called the Great Commission, this is the marching orders for us as his followers, he mentioned three things about uh, making disciples. He said, go, then he said, baptize, and then he said, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is a crucial step as a follower of Jesus. And if you haven't made that step yet, we encourage you to do that because it lifts up this value that Jesus is the difference that's so important here at First Free. And we want that value to be known. So let me introduce myself to those of you who are new, reintroduce myself to those of you who have been around for a while. My name is Bill. I served as a pastor here for 12 years. And then six years ago, you all commissioned Carol and me to go and be your ambassadors to the global church. We are doing training of pastors and church leaders in various places around the world where formal training is not available. About 80% of pastors in the world have no formal training. So we are there to try and help fill the gap. And we focus in the area of leadership development. So thank you for being the church that has sent us out. Thank you for being the church that supports us among others. Thank you for your prayers. And thanks to Adam for the privilege of being able to speak to you all today. Let's pray before we look together at the passage that we're going to be covering. Father, thank you so much for the work that you have done in the lives of these 20 people. We would pray that you will fill them with a great passion for you, with a love for you and a love for others that reflects more and more the way your son loved you as his father and the way he loved others with the love that you provide to us. Thank you for the privilege today of looking together to your word. Thank you for your desire to guide us and lead us. We pray that today you will be the ultimate teacher, both here and with the many who are at the family camp down at Pinecrest. And we thank you, Father, for your desire to open our ears to help us to hear what you want to say to us. And so give us receptive and responsive hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our wonderful Lord and Savior, amen. Well, if you're like I am, you like things that make your life simpler. And when I thought of that this past week as I was preparing for today, I, I thought of my first computer. When I was in school, I had to type up papers on a typewriter, and when I got into first years of ministry, I wrote out messages by hand. How many of you are old enough to have worked on a typewriter? Raise your hands. All right. Do you remember what it was like when you made a mistake on a typewriter? All the different ways you could correct it. I mean, you could turn, what, what, what's that thing called that you turn on a typewriter? The platen. Thank you for the reminder. So you turn it to the, to the place where the errors, you can erase it, you know, sweep it off, and then you can roll it back to the right place. They also had this stuff that was called, like, correct tape. Do you remember that? It was like a sort of a piece of, plastic about that size, about the size of a stick of gum. And on one side, you had this 
powder coating that was white. And so you would slide that down over the wrong uh, type that you had. You would type what was wrong, and then it was made white again, and you could type over it. Or if you were maybe a little bit on the upgraded side, which I wasn't in seminary, you had that little bottle of stuff called liquid paper. And it, was, it had a little brush on the inside, kind of like nail polish, and you could, again, turn the platen, and then you could cover over that, you'd blow on it till it dried, and then you could, I mean, do you remember what that was like? <laughs> now, those of you who raised your hands, if you saw people sitting around you who didn't raise their hands, turn to them and say, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> and that doesn't include all the other advancements. You know, autocorrect. It would take T-E-H automatically, T-H-E. Brilliant. <laughs> Spell checkers. Automatic placement of footnotes and endnotes. You could change formatting. I mean, just like it was this incredible experience to watch the dot matrix printer <laughs> begin to spit out the first message that I composed on the computer. Just amazing. Wow. So today, what I would like to do is to see if I can make our journey as followers of Jesus simpler. I'm not saying it's going to make it easier. I know the switch from typewriter to computer did that, but this will just make it less complicated for us to try to figure out what does God want us to do, who does he want us to become, how does he want us to respond in the situations of life that we encounter, and I hope that you will find the benefit of this as a follower of Christ, because there is one ultimate priority that we have on good authority, that if we keep this ultimate priority, it will be much easier for us to faithfully follow the Lord. So, I'd like you to consider what Jesus said when he was asked, <clears throat> I'm gonna get some water here. When he was asked, what is the most important commandment? And here's his response. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So our task... My task is to help us be people who are devoted to this, to understand that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And Jesus is saying, this is the main thing. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we don't have time to look at both of those commands. We'll only look at the one. But if we keep those two things in mind, it will help us in all that we do because it will lead us to everything else that God wants us to do if we rightly understand and rightly apply it. So to dig into this, I want to follow the storyline of one of the standout churches in the New Testament. 
It's the church at Ephesus because this is a church that demonstrates what it looks like to love God with a supreme love, to love others with a sacrificial love. So the story begins with an extended account in the book of Acts and the lengthy stay of one of the commissioned apostles that Jesus sent out. And this one was Paul. He was the apostle into the Gentile world, into the world of the Roman Empire. And he ended up in Ephesus for an extended stay and he saw incredible change in these people. They grew in their love for God in profound ways. And there was a tremendous result. I mean, this is the result that is summarized in Acts chapter 19. It says, people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So this wasn't something that was limited to a small group of people. It wasn't even limited to the confines of this major city in the ancient Roman world. This is something that spread across an entire province all along the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's easy to see why. This was a, a place where God did powerful work. There were incredible miracles that God worked through Paul that healed people physically, healed them spiritually. There are even accounts where they would take objects that Paul had touched to people who were dealing with that kind of difficulty and they were set free. And there's this one kind of funny incident that took place with uh, a group of seven Jewish exorcists. They were the seven sons of Sceva. And they had seen the power at work through Paul's ministry. And so they went out and they tried to invoke the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And if you're familiar with the story, they did this with one man who was dealing with demon possession. And this is what he said to them. I know Jesus. And I know Paul. But who are you? And he beat them so mercilessly, they fled out of his house naked and bleeding. Now, I don't know about your neighborhood, but if there were people skulking home in shame, naked and bleeding in our neighborhood, word would get out about that. And it was true back in those days as well. Word got out, and this was what happened. It says, a solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. And these are more than isolated incidents. The, the love for God had spread so broadly and had penetrated so deeply that it affected the local economy. Here's how. In the city of Ephesus, you could find one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Diana or Artemis. And so people came literally from all over that part of the known world to honor this goddess, to worship at the temple. And so as the message of Jesus spread, as more and more people embraced it, as it began to flow out of Ephesus into other parts of this area in Asia, the number of people who became followers of Jesus kept increasing, and the number of people who turned from their old pagan ways was decreasing. And before long, those who made their living by manufacturing objects that were used 
or sold at the temple or in the temple precincts, they saw their business drying up. And so there was a time when they gathered together, they had this raucous gathering, it almost became a riot because of the amazing transformational power of Jesus Christ in the lives of so many people. It makes me think of some of the historical accounts that I've read of the revivals that took place in Wales back in the early 1900s. The, the effect was so pervasive that they literally had to retrain the animals that worked in the coal mines. The behavior of the miners had changed so drastically. Their language had been altered so completely, the animals didn't know how to respond anymore. And that's the kind of power that the love of God can have as it spreads across people who are followers of Jesus. Just one more example that comes up in the book of Acts. Luke records a bonfire that took place. And here's what the bonfire was about. Many of the people who had come to faith in Christ, they had been practicing occult practices. <clears throat> what we would call dark magic. And they had scrolls that recorded different incantations and spells and that type of thing. Well, they brought those things and they piled them up and they set it on fire. And Luke records the value of the scrolls that they sent up in flames. In today's dollars, it, it would be roughly $10 million. $10 million. This is a very practical expression of your love for God. Now, why did they decide, well, just sell those things, give the money to the church, give it to the poor, give it to support the mission work going on all over the province? Well, when they looked at what these scrolls contained and the corrupting influence and power it would have, they didn't want to give it to other people. They wanted to take it out of circulation no matter what the cost. See, when, when we are being transformed by the love of, of Christ, we renounce our old ways, no matter what the price may be. And that's what they did. So if we want a biblical depiction of what it looks like to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, we need to become familiar with the story of the church in Ephesus. And then we read about the one who was there when this all happened, Paul. And he modeled this kind of life where you make the main thing the main thing. I want to read for you about a meeting that took place. It was the end of his third missionary journey. Paul is headed back to Jerusalem. He knows trouble awaits him there. He's not going to see these people again, but he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus. And as he's saying farewell to them, as he's giving them instructions... Luke records some of the comments that he made. Let me read just a couple of them for you. You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. In fact, he says, remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. I mean, he devotes himself to make the main thing the main thing. He loves God. He loves these people and they witnessed it, and it made a huge impact on them. And it, later on, 2,000 years later, it made an impact on me. As I was preparing for my baptism, when I was a young follower of Christ, 
I chose one of the statements Luke records about his farewell to the leaders of the church in Ephesus as my baptism verse. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So you can see how these two commandments that Jesus quoted, love God supremely, love others sacrificially, they do make our lives simpler, but they don't make them easier. And if we'll focus on those two ultimate priorities, we'll end up living more and more and more like Jesus. So you might think this initial burst of, of, of growth really propelled them for the rest of their lives as a church, and it did have an impact that lasted, but it needed reinforcement. And we know that as we continue reading about the story of this church in Ephesus. There's a letter contained that Paul wrote here in the New Testament, and he urges them to continue pursuing the Lord with fervor, with faithfulness. See, even with all the miracles that set them free from these various afflictions, even with the bonfire of repentance, even with an impact so great in their community that it altered the local economy, they couldn't live in the past. And so Paul wrote things like this to them in that letter. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. You see, just like us, when, when, when they started this pathway of discipleship and they began to follow Christ, they brought baggage with them from the past. They had some of their old values, their old way of looking at things, their old way of, of living, their old habits. And they needed to shed those things and leave them behind. And the same thing happens today in churches. And the reason I know this is because I did study for my doctoral dissertation on this pathway and process of discipleship. So we did surveys in the church that we were in, in Indiana at the time. And what it indicated is that we have this tendency as followers of Jesus where there's that sort of that initial burst of growth and then we throttle back and we kind of level off because we're at what we consider sort of a comfortable level of commitment, a comfortable level of love for God, a comfortable level of love for others, and we stop growing. And it wasn't just this church that I served. This was true of pastors who were doing the same survey in the, pastor, in the churches where those pastors served. That happens to us. We often revert to some of our old ways, our old habits. And that may be the reason it's rare in the Bible to find disciples who finish well. I don't know if that's the only reason, but I think it is one reason. We don't keep the main thing, the main thing. 
And that's where what Jesus tells us is so helpful, even though it makes life harder. So to help us grow in our love for God, to keep us propelled so that we are maintaining the main thing as the main thing, I want us to look at the last glimpse that we have of this church in Ephesus because it provides some really helpful insights on the temptations we face, the dangers we face, and what we can do about it if somehow we have lost track of the main thing. So I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of context. Revelation chapter 2. It's likely that all the other apostles have died except for one. The one who remains is John. He's in exile. He's in prison on an island in the Aegean Sea just off the coast of the province of Asia. And the power of Rome has started to suffocate the church. And, and guess who shows up on a prison visit? Jesus does. And it isn't, the, it isn't the Jesus that John was familiar with when he was walking with Jesus in the hills of Galilee or Judea. This is a vision of the resurrected Jesus, the exalted Jesus, the Jesus seated at the Father's right hand. And when John saw this vision of Jesus, this is what he says, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. So Jesus commissions John. I want you to record the vision. And as part of the vision, I want you to write seven letters to these seven churches. They're nearby churches on the mainland, beginning with the church at Ephesus. And it may be not only because Ephesus was geographically close, but it's likely that Ephesus was the leading church among the seven. Start with that one. It was the one that may have given birth to the other churches because of what happened in that province of Asia. So I want you to see what he wrote. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Write this letter to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And I know Revelation is difficult to understand. You look at the images and you think, what does this mean? Well, all we have to do is back up a few lines and we see what the images are all about. So go back to chapter 1, verse 20, and it explains, this is the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I can't help but be captivated by this depiction of the church as the golden lampstand. Uh, for one thing, it's part of the Old Testament imagery of God's presence. There was a golden lampstand in the temple, and the golden lampstand was in the holy place. It provided light for the priestly work going on. And I thought, wow, we in the church, we have a place close to God. We are called priests, a kingdom of priests. And we are called the light of the world. So this is part of our identity here at First Free. We are a lampstand here in West County. That's what we're called to be. 
We are near the holy place where God is dwelling because of our relationship with him. In Christ, we have priestly work that we do. We are interceding for people. We're helping them to know the way into God's presence. And we are to shine the light of Christ. Now, I don't know how often you think about us that way. If you're like me, it's probably not often enough. But that's the picture that Jesus gives of us. That's what first free is supposed to be. That's what we are. We are a lampstand. And then it describes Jesus. He is the one who is walking among the lampstands. And what do you suppose Jesus is doing as he's walking among the lampstands? He's looking. He's observing. He's watching. And now he's communicating. Jesus knows what's going on in his church. Do you think that's changed since the first century? No. I think we can be pretty confident that Jesus is still walking among his churches. They're a little more scattered around the globe now than they were back then. But he is walking among the churches that exist in Manila and in Johannesburg and in Lima, Peru and in Cairo, Egypt, and he is walking among the churches here in St. Louis. Wow. We probably don't think as much as we should about that either, right? So look at the first words of his message to his church. I know. I know. And he lists several commendations for this church in Ephesus. Let me just read them for you here. He says, I know all the things you do. They're an active church. Uh, Paul said to Titus in his letter that Jesus wants us to be zealous for good works. Here's a church that's living that out. He says, I know your hard work. They're a diligent church. The, the picture of the phrase hard work is like sweat dripping toil. He says, I know your patient endurance. This is a committed church. They're in it for the long haul. He says, I know you have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. They're a discerning church. They have expressed what the Bible describes of mature people who by constant use are able to discern between good and evil. So they can listen to teachers and they can weigh what they say against what the scripture says and they can discern who are the true teachers and who are the false teachers. So this is a mature church. He says, I know you've suffered patiently for me without quitting. So this is a resilient church. It's a tough time to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus is among us. And he is as fully aware, fully informed, and fully engaged today as he was then. And that means that if Jesus were to write a letter to us, he could say the same thing. 
I know, and he could fill in all the things that he finds at first free that are commendable, that are pleasing to him. And if we stop here, it would be easy to conclude, wow, this is, it's just as amazing at the end of the New Testament as it was early when this story broke out in Ephesus. But just as Jesus can list all the things that are commendable, he can also list all the things that are troubling. And that's what he does. Take a look at verse four. This is what it says. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And I think other translations may capture the potency of this maybe a little bit better. This is how it's translated in the English Standard, standard Version. It says, you have abandoned your first love. You abandoned it. Wow. It's a strong word. But do you see the picture that Jesus is painting for them? They have all these good works that they're engaged in, all these commendable deeds, all these great qualities, but their back is turned on the real motivation that should be driving it all. You've left it behind. Here is a group of believers who are not keeping the main thing the main thing. sobering to me. And the reason why it's sobering to me is that I like to do stuff. I like to think about what are some of the important tasks that I can focus on? How do I prioritize them? How do I work them into this day, this week, this month, this year? I love doing that kind of thing. And when I've done those things, check, 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 check. I, I love checking things off. And from what I know about the cross-section of first free, I would say we have a lot of people here like that. You like to think about what's important. You like to build it into your schedule. You like to pursue those things. You like the accomplishment of having achieved them, just like I do. But is it possible if Jesus were to write a letter to us that he would say the same thing. Is it possible that we have failed to make the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing? What about our most important relationship? Is the love fresh? Is the love grow, growing? Is it stronger now than it was a while ago? That's what we really need to be asking. Well, as the master disciple maker, Jesus doesn't leave the church in Ephesus or us waiting to find out how to fix this problem. He gets to it in the very next part of this letter. And I wanna read the phrases 
that are in the Bible, but I want to summarize them with three words because I think it'll be easier to remember. Here's the first thing he says to the church in Ephesus. Look how far you've fallen. It's really the word remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the zeal you had. Remember the willingness to sacrifice whatever was required. Remember the single-mindedness that you had to please when he was at the center of what you did. Then he says, turn back to me. That's the old-fashioned word, repent. We need to repent for abandoning our love for him as our ultimate priority. We need to repent for losing track of this first and foremost quality that God wants us to cultivate and grow in. We need to remember and repent about doing all these other things but missing the main thing. So remember, repent, and here's the third thing. He says, do the works you did at first. Return. Return to the things that fed your love for me when you first started. Return to those things that are going to encourage you to develop your love for God. Not by making them another checklist. You know, yeah, I read my Bible. I prayed my prayers. Yeah, I went to church. Yeah, I gave my money. Yeah, I served, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because then we fall into the same trap they did. The same trap that the Pharisees and scribes did. Who, they were doing good things, but they had neglected the most important thing. That's where remembering this can help us so much. It can steer us back to where we belong. Remember, repent, and return. And to show you how serious this is, look at the warning that comes. Here's what it says. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. You see what Jesus is saying here? We cannot rightly show the way for others to enter into a relationship with him without this kind of vibrant love. He is saying it's better that there not be a church here than a church that doesn't keep the main thing the main thing. Wow. So here's the invitation that Jesus gave to that church, he gives to all the other churches, and he gives to us. At the end of this letter, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. You can see our temptation. Our temptation is that good-looking activities will always become an easy substitute for what ultimately matters. So this is an opportunity for us to listen an opportunity, if we need to, to respond in the way that is described here. Remember, repent, 
and return. So I'd like to pray as we finish our message. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for giving us the simple pathway of life that really summarizes all that you desire for us as your followers. We want to love you, and we want to love others. But you also know the struggle that we have with this. We see that in this letter that you wrote to this church. We want to thank you that you desire to shepherd us even as you shepherded them. And so I think of the people here at First Free. You know those that, Lord, they're, they're pressing forward. They're continuing to grow. They're, they're wrestling to have a, a vibrant and faithful and fresh love with you. Thank you for these people who are doing that. I pray that you will strengthen them, that you will encourage them that today would be an opportunity not to be discouraged because of our failures, but to thank you. Thank you for giving us that desire. Thank you for helping us to press forward. But Lord, there may be others who have kind of reduced their Christian life to a checklist and have left behind what is most important. And you know who we are. And perhaps you've spoken in a very personal way to people who are experiencing that. They've kind of throttled back as we talked about. And so I pray that to, today would be a day to remember what it was like when you were the first love. To repent for straying. And then beginning now to return to those things that fuel that passion for you. And Lord, maybe there's some people here who they, they have not yet entered into a, a personal commitment to you. And maybe they've had some misunderstanding about what it is that, you know, it's a, a list of do's and don'ts. It's about having this relationship of faithful, loyal love to you and a selfless love to others like Jesus showed. And that can only happen as you forgive us and you begin your work of transforming us. So maybe today you can bring correction where there's been misunderstanding. Lord, you know where all of us are. You know what all of us need to hear. So we pray for your work to be done as we close with this song that talks about what our vision in life should be. And as to prepare our hearts for that song of response, I wanna pray this prayer that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, we know that you can do this because you are the one described by Paul, the one who can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.